Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you with us as we continue our series, Uncensored. In this series, we found that some of the topics Jesus covered are uncomfortable. Today, lead pastor David Fossil doesn't shy away from Scripture as he explains Jesus, adultery, and divorce. We're reminded that we should want all the counsel of God, even when it makes us uncomfortable. Listen as Pastor Dave explains how we should desire to be controlled by Scripture, not tears, as he helps us discover three words that can impact our lives. Apologize, forgive, and accept God's grace. Okay, grab your study guide that's in your program and turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. Before we jump in real quick, I am. I, I was over at Barnes & Noble right next door. We're moving there at the beginning of September. I was right over there yesterday, and oh my goodness, does it look great. How many of you, the, the team is just doing a fabulous job. How many of you have not seen the work they've done over there? You've not been over there. Okay, I made an executive decision. If you want, right after service, you want to go over there and check it out? You can. You can go over there and check it out. One condition, though, there is a password. A password you have to say before you go in. The password is God loves dogs more than cats. So as long as you say that, you can go in. You really can go in whether you say that or not. Uh, I am honestly, I'm so proud of the construction teams. Uh, but beyond that, the worship teams and the usher teams and the hospitality teams and small groups and youth and children together as a big collective team called Bay Hills, uh, we're making a difference in the kingdom. And so uh, I just want you to know your pastor's proud of you guys. And it is exciting what we're doing. Okay, here's my segue. It's Barnes & Noble. Back when Barnes & Noble was a lot more popular uh, around the country and next door when it was open, have you ever gone into a Barnes & Noble bookstore or maybe gone into a library or something, picked up a book, and on the front cover, front jacket of the book, you saw the word uncensored. Think about that. Uncensored. So like uncensored biography of, you know, O.J. Simpson. Right? He's been in the news again this week, right? And getting out on parole and all that stuff. Or, or uncensored story of Watergate and President Nixon, right? Or maybe it was a documentary. The uncensored story of, and it's some cold case file and they're giving you a documentary. When that word uncensored is used, what are they trying to do? They're trying to give you a little hint that what they're going to give you in the documentary or in the book, it's, it's the whole truth. It's the unvarnished truth. It's the unpopular truth. We're going to lay it all on the line. We're going to tell you all the little dirty secrets, right? We're going to give it all to you, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you feel. That's what that word is intended to do. The series we're in was intentionally named Uncensored. We are going through Matthew 5 to chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And what you see, the more you study it and the more you read it, is that Jesus doesn't hold back any punches. I mean, there are some issues and some topics that he covers that are frankly uncomfortable, right? By the way, did you, uh, did you guys see what we're covering this morning? Did you guys see that? What a fun Sunday for me to come to church, right? Jesus, adultery, and divorce, right? You know, honestly, when I was organizing the series, I was like, let's just skip this, you know, or, or maybe we'll do it, but I'll give it to Nate or Dave Sauer, have them teach on or something. 
you know? And then I thought, time out. We don't want to be one of those churches, do we? We don't want to be one of those churches that just covers all the easy stuff, the fun stuff, the very practical right away stuff. That's next week, right? Next week, we're talking about worry and anxiety and stress. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll show up for that week. Uh, this week, uh, maybe I'll skip it, right? And yet, the reality is, is, is I'm going to give you guys the benefit of the doubt. I think for the most part, we as a church, we, we want all the counsel of God. Even when it does at times make us feel uncomfortable, right? Even when the unvarnished truth makes us squirm a little bit. And here's also a reality. When it comes to this topic of divorce, either we've experienced it or we were in a home where we saw it or we have friends or coworkers that are right now going through it. And the more we think about it, this is, this is our entire society. We all at some point in time will deal with this some way, somehow, either directly or indirectly. And so it's worth discussing right? So I guess before we jump in, I got a question for you. Are you willing, will you allow Jesus to share uncomfortable, uncensored, unvarnished truth with you? My guess is that most of you would say, yeah, I'll take it from Jesus. From you, I'm not sure so much, but from Jesus, we'll take it, right? I'm going to do the best that I can. If this is your first time at Bay Hills, honestly, um, it's a little bit different direction that we go in. Um, You're going to see a lot more of the teacher, David, not so much the preacher, David. Um, You're going to have to put on your thinking caps. We're going to drill deep into some of these topics. You know, I don't have a lot of fun stories or jokes about affairs. It's just not appropriate, right? So we're going to dig deep. We're going to cover this topic. And honestly, I will make sure it applies to everyone. You know me. Everyone will get something out of this morning. Okay? So here, let's just jump right in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. Jesus starts and he says, You have heard it that it was said. In other words, you read in the Old Testament. You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, in other words, I'm going to up the ante, which he does in the New Covenant. He does in the New Testament, right? The Old Covenant, how did you pay for sins? You had to bring a goat to church to sacrifice. The New Covenant, none of you showed up with goats. None of you showed up with a lamb to sacrifice. Why? Because in the New Covenant, the Lamb of God has paid the ultimate sacrifice for you. You didn't have to show up with a lamb. It's better for you. But with the New Covenant comes increased expectations. You've heard it said. You shall not commit adultery. But I am telling you, I am upping upping the ante, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So as as we begin, he he goes into these two principles. This idea, and let's put the next slide up there, that adultery with my body is always sin. Sex outside of the context of marriage is always sin. But I love her. Doesn't matter. But we're going to get married. It doesn't matter. But I've already left my spouse. It doesn't matter. Sex outside of the context of marriage between husband and wife is always, every single time, no excuse. It's always a sin. But now Jesus ups the ante. Adultery with my heart is also sin. And when he says heart, he really means mind. If you're you're just thinking about it, planning it, thinking of fantasizing about it right here, it's also sin. Back in the late 80s, um, I don't know if you're in the country western uh, music, but Randy Travis sang a song called Reasons I Cheat. A working day so long, too long, when everything goes wrong, and a boss who don't know that I'm alive. I once had a notion I'd get that promotion, but now I barely survive. A wife too demanding with no understanding of why I stay dead on my feet. A dimly lit tavern, a willing young woman 
are just some of the reasons that I cheat. The hair that I'm losing and a woman who's choosing to lay sound asleep by my side, the bills they are mounting, that's when I start counting on someone to help soothe my pride. A lady that knows me, affection she shows me, and a smile so easy and sweet, the dreams that I've buried, the load that I've carried, are some of the reasons I cheat. My children keep on growing, my age keeps on showing, like all my old friends I meet. So I'm getting older, my life's growing colder, just some of the reasons I cheat. We've all heard the statistics. 50% of spouses at some point in time have an affair. 50%. Those are staggering numbers. Until the most recent statistics have come out that say that 65% of husbands and 55% of wives at some point in time have an affair. It's just, it's breathtaking. It's, it's hard to comprehend. Now, if you're not careful, some of us are sitting here, uh, and no matter where, where, where you're at on the spectrum, some of us are starting to feel guilty. You know that's not my style, Right? And that's not my style we're, we're talking truth and we're trying to say, what do I do now based upon what I've done? And then some of us may be in another seat thinking, oh, thank God I'm not part of that 50 percent. I haven't done something as awful as that time out. Second bullet point, 50 to 60 percent may have committed adultery with their body. But what percentage of us have committed adultery in our heart and minds? Oh, it's got to be 98.5%. There's maybe Mother Teresa and Billy Graham somewhere out there. Come on now. Okay, so be careful about being too self-righteous about, I've never done that. Uh, second bullet point? I think so. Okay, now, here's the thing. If you, you, can you see how we're about ready to open a can of worms? Here we go, right? Because the minute... You say this, I, I'm telling you, some people go on a tangent and make a theological mistake that has dire consequences. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put the next slide up here. This is a summary of 300 pages of the theology of sin that you're going to find in some theology books. We've already covered the first two statements. Adultery with my body is always sin. Adultery with my heart is also sin. Now, the minute you go there, there's always someone that says, well... If I've already thought about it in my heart and it's already said, I might as well do it. Oh, they may not verbally say that, but they go ahead and live their way, their life that way. It's so important that you get to the second two statements. From a salvation standpoint, a legal standpoint, Scripture would say, all sin is equal. So watch. If you lie or if you commit murder, both of those sins equally need a Savior. Does that make sense? So it doesn't matter how small the sin is or how big the sin is. It doesn't matter how little you sin or how much you sin. It doesn't matter what category you fall into. In some respects, all sin is equal and all of us need a savior. First st statement. But don't forget the second statement. Again, some of us will like, well, like I said, adultery, it's all sin, mind or body or whatever. I might as well do it. No, not so fast. From a practical standpoint, all sin is different. I don't have time to go through all the verses with you, but they're in your study guide. Even Jesus says that. All sin isn't the same. There's no way, no how it's all the same. Cer certainly, adultery with your body and adultery with your mind have completely different consequences. Completely different consequences. As goes every other area of life. All sin isn't the same. There are some sins that are much worse with greater consequences. So don't play that game in your mind. 
And then finally, when we sin, our relationship or our status with God is unchanged. Romans chapter 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. In other words, I come to Christ, embrace him as Savior and Lord, genuinely want him to be that in my life. But every once in a while, even Pastor Dave, I'm going to sin, right? He doesn't say, okay, but your, your relationship with me is unchanged. You are still my son. I've got three kids, and sometimes they please me, and sometimes they displease me, but they will always still be my kids. Does that make sense? However, when you and I sin... Our friendship with God, some people would say fellowship, but to me that's just too much of a churchy word. Our friendship with God is affected all the time. In Ephesians, it talks about when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We make God angry. We make God sad. When I sin, I'm still his son. When I sin, I hurt God. So this is real quickly, in three minutes, the theology of sin as presented in Scripture. So now Jesus presents this. He talks about adultery in your body and in your mind. And then he says, okay, let me give you, I want to give you an illustration of what I'm talking about and why this matters. So he continues on and he says something crazy. Let's put the next slide up there. Verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, literally there he means sin. If your eye causes you to sin, what I want you to do is gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Just to make sure we understand, if your right hand causes you to stumble, sin, I want you to cut it off and I want you to throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, question, does he want us to literally do that? Instinctively, you know he doesn't want us to do that because we're not all walking around with only one hand, right? Or one, one eye. What he's doing here is speaking and using a teaching technique called hyperbole. Hyperbole is nothing more than speaking in an exaggerated way to make a point, right? Sometimes my stories, I speak in hyperbole. I'm speaking in an exaggerated way to make a point. We all do it, every single one of us. Every single one of us, when we say something like this, oh my goodness, I'm starving, that's hyperbole. You're not literally starving. Your, you, your stomach isn't bloating like people kids get when they're starving. You, you aren't going to be sponsored by someone so you get three meals a day. When you say, I'm starving, that doesn't, you're, you're say, speaking in an exaggerated way to say, you know what, I didn't have lunch because I had to keep working and my stomach is growling, I'm starting to get a headache, I'm feeling a little grumpy, I'm really hungry. That's what you really mean. But you will speak in hyperbole to make a point. I'm starving. So Jesus is doing the same thing. And he's saying, if if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Exaggeration to make a point. What's the point? Where are we going with all this? No matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through life, this next slide matters to everybody. Take whatever steps are necessary to avoid and to eliminate sin. Take whatever steps are necessary to avoid and to eliminate sin. There was an issue at a school, middle school up in Oregon. Um, At middle school years, you know, girls are starting starting to put on makeup and the lipstick and all that stuff. That was happening at that school, not the end of the world, except one small problem. The girls were going into the, the girls' bathroom in the middle of the day, and they were putting on lipstick, and then they were kissing the mirror, right? Uh, and it's initially it's kind of, oh, that's kind of cute. And they kiss the mirror and their lip prints are there. Except that poor custodian every single day 
was spending a ton of time cleaning off that mirror. So they made an announcement to all the girls, please don't do that. It kept on happening, all these little lip prints on the mirror. And so finally the principal decided, okay, I'm going to step in and I'm going to make sure they don't do this anymore. And so the, the principal, she called in uh, some of the most popular girls, three or four of them, pulled them into the girls' bathroom, and they, they stood in front of all the lip prints. And, of course, they don't know who did it and who didn't do it. But these were popular girls, and they figured they're probably in on it, and at the very least they can spread the news. And, and the principal said, now, we've told you not to do this, uh, but it keeps happening. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give you some motivation to not do this anymore to make sure none of the girls do this anymore because we know who you are and we know you'll spread the news. So the way we're going to motivate you is we want to show you the process that the custodian goes through to clean the mirror every single night. We want to show you right now. We want you to experience that. So the custodian was, came in and the custodian took out a really long brush, long brush. Then the custodian took that brush, walked over to one of the stalls and dipped it in the toilet. Walked up cleaned the mirror, went back to the, went back there, dipped it in, cleaned it all off, right? And then the principal spoke and said, please spread the news. <laughs> spread the news. Let everyone know that when you kiss the mirror, it's kind of like putting your lips in the toilet. Problem solved. There was never any lip prints anymore. But here's the point. If some of us realized how dirty sin really is, if we realized how filthy sin really is, we'd stop kissing the mirror. God spoke of one example, adultery. But how about all the other sins? How are you kissing the mirror? Guess what Jesus says to you this morning? Whatever you got to do, do whatever you got to do to avoid and eliminate sin because you don't, you don't realize what it's doing to your soul. You don't realize how ugly it is, how filthy it is, how dirty it is. Right then, on the hillside as Jesus is preaching, it probably got as quiet as it got right in here. Okay, thank goodness he got over that stuff. And Jesus then clears his throat and he says, you know what? While we're talking about adultery, it makes me think of something else we should talk about. How about we talk about divorce? And I was like, oh, no, here we go. Here we go. And this is what he says. I put the next verses up there. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. It's interesting to me. It makes me smile when I hear people think, uh, say that the Bible is chauvinistic. Uh, what people don't realize, when you study cultures around the world, it's interesting to note that the cultures, the countries that most mistreat women, are the cultures where Christianity has made little or no inroads. Every time Christianity and every time this book makes an impact on a culture, it always elevates the status of women, every single time. What you might not realize is that when Jesus, when God, when Moses give this command of a certificate of divorce, the entire reason, the entire reason is to elevate the status of a woman, entire reason. What was happening in those days is a husband would, I don't know, want, get sick and tired of his wife and want to kick her out, but not make it legal. And at the time, it, it was okay to do that. And so now you had a woman who, she didn't know what her status, she couldn't really go back to mom and dad's house, and she, she really couldn't get married, and it, was, it made for a mess. And so God sets the law and says, listen, for the sake of elevating and taking care of women, if you're going to do this, I don't like it, but if you're going to do it, you absolutely must give a certificate of divorce. Maybe you didn't know that, but that's the entire reason it's there. 
Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You know, initially, when I was putting together this study guide, I had it as a blank, and then I took it out because it was so obvious. I was like, I'm not going to even put it in. But this is, this is what I was going to do. This is what I wanted to say. God elevates and values marriage. Our God values marriage. Our culture devalues marriage. I was like, might as well not even put it on the screen or on the study guide because it's so obvious. Our God values marriage. He invents it and gives it in the book of Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden. He gives it as a gift. He gives it to bring enjoyment and to fulfillment. And he expects you and me to take care of it and to build it. Our God values marriage. Our culture devalues marriage. Never more have I experienced that than a jewelry store in Hollywood that has a sign out front in the window that says, We rent wedding rings. But does that not communicate better than anything else what has become of our culture? For God, it is meant to be a lifelong covenant, commitment. For our culture, it's been a temporary contract. That's what it's become, right? I share this. Last time I went to Africa, just five, six months ago, they had me do a big seminar on marriage. And to just explain this principle of how it is presented in in the book of Genesis, I took two pieces of paper, and and I've I've talked to you about this illustration before, but there I literally did. I took a yellow piece of paper and a blue piece of paper, and I glued them together. One week later, I'm standing up in front of this big crowd teaching on marriage, and I wanted to explain to them what happens when two people come together in marriage, and then they separate. You see, in the book of Genesis, it it is said that when you marry, uh, the husband and the wife, they, they shall leave father and mother. And they will be united with their spouse. The old King James says they will cleave to their spouse. That word cleave literally means to glue. It literally means in Hebrew to glue. So I took a piece of paper, two pieces of paper, and glued them together. One week later, what happened when I tried to rip those pe- or take those pieces of paper apart? They ripped and they crumpled. And some of the yellow piece of paper stayed stuck on the blue and the blue stayed stuck on the yellow and it's not pretty. And that's what God says. My ideal is that it be till death do you part. But I I know how life is, and I know how sometimes it doesn't work, and I know how sometimes someone goes off the deep end, and I know how it is. And so I will allow for it. I will permit it under certain circumstances, but I, I, I don't like it. In fact, in the book of Malachi, he says, I hate it. Why does he hate? He doesn't hate you. He hates what it does to you and how it hurts you and what you have to go through. And I certainly, says God, hate what it does to your kids. You could tell me all you want. I have outread you when it comes to psychological journals and what it does to our kids. So let's just be open and honest about it. It's hurtful. So now what do I do? Well, let's just dive right in. When is divorce permissible? When is it permissible and thereby remarriage? There's a couple things that you should know. Matthew chapter 5, we just looked at it. You can't divorce except for sexual infidelity. We just talked about that. But then Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says divorce is allowed in cases of abandonment. In other words, the spouse just pretty much leaves, right? I was 17 years old, 18 years old. I had just finished my first year of college. Just instead of... Uh, flying back to Spain where my parents lived, I decided to 
to stay in Michigan and um, work for my uncle in Lansing. He gave me a room in his house. He had a business, gave me a job. It was great. Borrowed one of his cars. His, uh, my uncle and aunt were going through some, some trouble. They were going through some challenges. And I remember one particular Friday night, uh, I had finished my, my, my job and he had finished. We were driving back home. And uh, as we turned the corner and we saw his house right up there, we saw that his wife, my aunt, had a big van and four or five of her friends, and they were loading stuff into the van. It was very obvious what was happening. She was leaving him. And I remember looking over at my uncle, and after his shock, I saw a tear. And all I remember saying is, just keep driving. I knew my buddies were waiting for me. This is back in the day when they didn't have cell phones. I lived back with Fred Flintstone, and we went to school together. And no cell phones, so I knew what was going to happen. They were going to wonder, where the heck is Dave? I was going to be with my uncle that night. And I, I hung out with him for four or five hours. And while my parents have never experienced divorce, I saw it from the inside. I saw what it did to him and my aunt, who I still, I still love, and I loved her, and my cousins. She just decided to leave. She decided to throw in the towel. And, and you know, the, their issues are on them. But it was not fun, as it's not for you when you've experienced it, whether you've gone through it or your parents have gone through it. Now, one of the things that I want to read, and here, here I spent six hours on Wednesday reading like 20 exegetical journals to make sure I got this right. One of the things that we evangelicals don't wrestle with enough. You say, what is an evangelical? An evangelical believes this book is true, fully authoritative, and without mistake. That's an evangelical. That's what we are. We believe in this book. We believe that the sermon is not Dave's opinion. It should be God's truth. So you have any right at any point in time to say, where does the Bible say that? That's why I encourage you on Sunday mornings to open your Bibles or follow along on your phone. Or that's why we put verses on the screen. That's what an evangelical is. Here's what we have not wrestled with enough. We've not wrestled with one word, this word right here. Let's put it on the screen. Except, follow my thinking. Watch. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, there's one reason and one reason only you can get divorced. One reason infidelity, adultery. That's the one reason, or the way it says it in Matthew, you can't divorce except for sexual infidelity. One reason. Question, if there's only one reason, one uh, that we can get divorced in Matthew 5, how the heck does Paul come around in Corinthians 7 and add a second reason? Do you see the problem? From a biblical standpoint, as you're studying scripture, if there's one reason in chapter 5 of Matthew, how the heck does Paul add a second reason in Corinthians 7? So very quickly, what you realize is that what's going on in Matthew 5 and going on in, in, in Corinthians 7 are not exclusively two reasons. They are examples of an overarching principle. They are examples of an overarching principle. Now, I'm going to tell you uh, the position that I hold uh, there are other very smart, godly evangelicals that hold other positions. There are many scholars and evangelicals that hold what I'm going to share with you. But I'm also going to share with you that this position is not a cookie-cutter approach. 
it gets attacked from both sides. And, and I'm going to tell you why in a little bit. Here's the principle. The, the idea is that these are merely examples of the principle. And here's the principle. Anytime something happens that severely and significantly damages the foundation of marriage, God permits divorce. Let me say that again. Anytime that something significantly and severely damages the foundation of marriage, God permits divorce, such as adultery, such as abandonment, such as there could be a third reason or a fourth reason or a fifth reason. Now, the minute you go there, some of you, you're already thinking quickly, oh, my goodness, you really opened up a can of worms because that's very subjective. Everybody can kind of decide on their own what is significant, right? Yes, it is subjective, but it's also good biblical exegesis. Let me give you an example. And I think this example will help illustrate the point that we're making and how this all fits in. Here it goes. God permits a divorce for sexual infidelity or abandonment. How about abuse? What do you do with that one? Even in abuse, there are levels of physical abuse. We know that, right? As a pastor, you know what I've realized over the years? Sometimes emotional abuse is worse than physical abuse. I've just noticed it. I'm not a trained psychologist. I just have to watch. Let's, let's backtrack. Let me give you a very specific example. You have a friend that comes to you. I know you go to church. I know you love Jesus. I'm not going to church much, but I want to please God. I got this situation in my marriage. I want to know, does God permit me to get divorced? And you say, well, tell me what's going on. Guess what I just found out? I found out my spouse has been trying to kill me. Attempted murder. Don't laugh. Why are you laughing? That's not funny. Just laugh. <laughs> They've been slipping cyanide in my cereal. They've been putting poison in my coffee, right? It's like, it's like the cold case files you see on some documentary, right? They're trying to get the insurance money or something. They've attempted murder. I want to know, question, is that permissible in God's eyes for divorce? What would you say? Yes? Okay. Show me. Show me a verse. Show me. You see, that's the problem, right? That's the problem. We just gave a principle... But it opens a can of worms because there's not a verse for attempted murder. But our instincts tell us, based upon what I know of God, based upon what I know how he, what he wants for men and women in the context of marriage, yeah, I would think attempted murder counts. It's certainly worse than any one of those. So, so see what I've just done? In just five minutes, one quick illustration, we have at least three reasons. You see what I'm saying? How, um, how about... Um, Extended prolonged drug abuse. You see, I could keep going because I have all kinds of horror stories. Because I'm the one that sits with the spouse in the office and cries with them. But see, I, I don't want to be controlled by tears. I want to be controlled by Scripture. And what Scripture seems to indicate is this. These are examples of a principle. Here's the principle. Anytime... Something significantly and severely damages the foundation of marriage. Now, what is the foundation? I've mentioned that three, four times. Genesis 2. 
Everything you really need to know about marriage is in Genesis 2, 22 through 25. There it is, all right there. The rest of scripture just develops it. Anytime that foundation is severely impacted, like adultery, like abandonment, like certain types of abuse, like attempted murder, anytime that foundation is damaged, God reluctantly permits divorce and thereby remarriage if you so choose, right? Now, here's how you get attacked from both sides. I gave you one example. There's going to get the people who say, well, show me a verse. If you can't show me a verse, then I'm not going to believe it. They get upset at me. And then the other people that get upset are the ones that, that want, want divorce for anything and everything, right? I wanted to make sure and get this right. I know this is heavy, but this is a big deal. We got to get this right in our families, okay? So I put it in your study guide. I also have it for you on the screen. Here's the divorce permissibility statement that I want you to walk through with you. God permits divorce as the exception to the divine ideal. So he wants it to last forever. You know that, right? He wants till death do us part to really mean that. That's what he wants. That's the divine ideal. But he understands how we are sometimes. God permits divorce as the exception to the divine ideal when actions of an egregious nature, uh, some of us are like egregious. That's a big fancy word for church. What are you doing? That's not typically Bay Hills. We try and keep it simple and on the bottom shelf, right? I remember the office people were like, really? That's the word you're going to use? It's the best word I could come up with. At the bottom, I've given you all the definitions that thesaurus says egregious is. It's atrocious, deplorable, extreme, grievous, heinous, flagrant, or glaring. When some, one of those happens, such as adultery, such as abandonment, and it has so damaged the foundational covenant of marriage, making the relationship irreparable. Now, notice irreparable is in quotation marks. Why? Well, I know what you and I mean when we say it's irreparable. But I can't, I can't let go of this idea that it, if this book is true and the God that is spoken of in this book really exists, then nothing is technically irreparable. Does that make sense? And so I, I, I'm not wanting to throw anyone under the bus, but I also want to say God is big enough and great enough if we give it enough time. And I know it's tough because I've been there in the office with, with the husband and the wife, right? Last sentence. Divorce is a last resort only after all attempts at reconciliation have proven unfruitful. So now let me, let me boil it down to the bare minimum, right? If, if, when is divorce permissible? And thereby, if God permits it, then he also permits remarriage. When is that permissible? Three boxes need to be checked. Let me show you. Let's put it up on the screen. We've already talked about this. An egregious action or behavior. Now, let me say this to you. When you're in the house with your spouse, your definition of egregious, major, significant, is very different than some of the godly people sitting around you. That's why godly counsel is so important. Because you could decide anything is egregious. And, and I'm telling you, as your pastor, um, not everything that you think is major or as big of a deal is what it is. Well, he raised his voice at me. That doesn't count. She doesn't give me enough sex. That doesn't count. I wish he made more money. That doesn't count. We've grown apart. That doesn't count. I don't feel toward them the way I used to. That doesn't count. When I say major, when I say significant, when I say egregious, I'm trying to get the spirit of what Scripture speaks of. It's big. Does that make sense? Yes. Some of you are going to take advantage of it. But that's not on me. My job is to present you what Scripture is.
But if you check box number one, you better make sure that some of the godly people around you give you advice. Does this qualify? And in some cases, it does. It does, right? Attempted restoration. You try. You tried. Can I tell you what bothers me the most as your pastor? The one single thing that bothers me most as your pastor really almost hurts me, frustrates me. By the time a couple comes and sits in my office and says, we've got problems, it's too late. It's too late. See, there are a lot of couples sitting right here today, and eh, on a scale of 1 to 10, my marriage, I don't know, a 5, a 6, it's, it's okay, it's not bad, but it's a 5. Why don't you think about when it's a 5 or a 6 getting a little bit of help? Does that make sense? If you go to the pastor or the counselor when, when your marriage is at 0.5 or 1, you know, and it's so hard to every marriage to do kind of open heart marriage surgery, it's frustrating. It's frustrating, right? But you got to try everything. Sit down with your pastor or one of the staff members. Sit down with a counselor. Talk to, talk to your parents or someone else that can give you, read a book. You're like, well, I don't like reading. Well, do you like your marriage? You know, I know, guys, we don't like... By the way, I don't like reading either. Did you know that? I hate reading. I'm going on vacation a couple weeks. I will not take a book with me. I won't. People sit by the pool, read books. I'm like, you're an idiot. I don't want to read a book. Right? But I like learning. I like learning. That's why I read. I read a lot, but I don't enjoy it. I don't, guys, I don't care if you like reading. You love your spouse. You want your marriage to be good. Put some effort into it, right? Do everything you got to do. Last bullet point, absolute last resort. It's the absolute last resort. So if you can check all of those boxes, boxes sincerely, here's what I tell couples when they come and sit before me and they're struggling and they go, you know, I might think about divorce. This is what I say to them every single time. You want to be able to say to your God, to say to your kids, and to say to yourself, I did everything I could. You want to be able to tell your God, your kids, and yourself, I did everything I could. I really did. I tried everything I could. And if you, if you, if that, if you check those boxes, then divorce is permissible. Okay, proud of you for making it through. Here's the application. Let's put the last slide up there. If you're married here today, don't get to the point where the topic of this morning matters to you that much. Work at your marriage. I am going to celebrate in November 28 years of marriage. 28 years. Yeah, no. Clap for Sandy. It was easy for me. Easy for me. Hard for her. 28 years. You know what I want you to know as a pastor? We're not just enduring each other. We genuinely love each other and our marriage is strong. But can I tell you something else? We work at it hard. You want to know the best thing about marriage? You have someone else that comes into your life that wants to work with you and you can be a team. I mean, that's what it says in Genesis, a helper. A helper. Understood properly, your spouse can help you become a better you. That's the best part of marriage. You want to know the worst part of marriage? The person coming into the marriage has just as much sin as you do, or at least a sin nature. We're both sinners. Sandy and I are both sinners. We're both imperfect. We have worked really hard at our marriage. And so what I'm saying to you, if your marriage, work at your marriage. 
Work to make it good. Second of all, if you're divorced, I want to encourage you to do three things. Apologize, forgive, and accept God's grace. If you're here today and you're like, oh my goodness, as I'm thinking through this, um, I didn't, I don't think I followed everything that God wanted me to do. If you're in that state, at least apologize to God. Just do that. I'm sorry. If you have the guts, you may need to apologize to your ex. You may need to for sure forgive your ex. I wanted to try and work it out. They didn't. You carry that, that bitterness inside of you. It makes you an ugly person. Don't be that. Choose to forgive them. And finally, accept God's grace. This is so important because I realize I know many of you and your stories. I don't want you to walk out of here with a burden on your shoulders. You are not a second-class Christian in God's eyes. Accept God's grace. Hold your chin up. Even if I made some mistakes in the past, I can move forward. I can move forward. You got to believe that, right? Don't, don't interpret my tone or any story or any way something that got said. Receive God's grace. Regardless of what happened in my past, he's got a future for me, okay? If you're single, be careful. Um, let me especially speak to all of you who have never been married and you're single and you hope someday to be married. You want to know what one of the most hurtful things I hear from couples who get divorced? I've heard it two or three times. Is when one of them says to me, uh, and interestingly enough, every, in every case, it's been, the, it's been the woman. In every case. I don't know why, but she says this to me. You know, my divorce started the day I decided to marry them. In other words, I made a bad choice. If you're single, be careful, be wise in choosing a spouse. Be careful. Don't be picky. Don't, there's no perfect spouse out there. And even if there were, they wouldn't want to marry you. So just to understand that, right? Be careful. You know, be wise, be biblical, okay? Now, this last one, I don't know if I'm really open in the can of worms, but I did so much study, I was surprised at two or three verses. This last one certainly applies to all of us, and it might freak you out. Let me show you the last one. For everyone, make sure God doesn't divorce us. What? Huh? I'm telling you. Isaiah chapter 50, Hosea chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 3, that's the language that is used. God says to the Jewish people at the time, I am divorcing you. Why? Why would God say that? Because you cheated on me. You cheated on me. Why maybe, while maybe not literally cheating on God, is this idea that, you know what? He saved you for eternity and asks one thing in return. I want to be number one in your life. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your job, not yourself. I want to be number one. I think that's a small little uh, thing that you could give me based upon me forgiving your sins and letting you live with me for eternity in heaven. I want to be number one. And anytime we don't live that way, spiritually speaking, we're essentially cheating on him. I mean, it's this whole idea in Revelation where Jesus says to the church, and and we're supposed to be married, Jesus in the church. Jesus says to the church, I'm going to blow out your candle. You and me, no more. Strong language. But this affects not only my marriage relationship with Sandy, it affects my marriage relationship spiritually with God. Before we end, 
Don't waste the last 35 minutes of your life. Look at that screen. What one thing do you most need to do? What one thing did God bring you here to, to, to speak to you about? Find it on that screen. Look at it in your notes. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I realize this morning was heavy, maybe difficult, but I hope also encouraging. I want you to take a moment, process what one thing did you hear today? Why did God want you here today? He had something specifically for you. Whatever it is, take a moment, 10 seconds, talk to God about that one thing you learned today. Dear Heavenly Father, um, you know my heart and you know that I really didn't want to cover this because I, I didn't want to make people feel uncomfortable. I didn't want them to feel guilty. I didn't want them to feel sad. But you also know that I chose to put those two aside to be honoring of the role that you've given me. I put that to the side wanting to please you more than I want to please people. And yet you've told us and you've promised us that as we wrestle with your unvarnished, uncensored truth, that the truth of what you have to say to us will set us free. Father, I want to pray for many of our friends and brothers and sisters that even right here today have experienced divorce. And whatever language they would use, the baggage that they're carrying or the guilt that they're carrying... Father, I pray that you would release them of that. Father, that they would take it and drop it off at the cross. Irrespective of the role that they played in the divorce, whether it was their fault or not their fault or a combination, regardless of what it is, Father, help them look forward. Help them look forward. Yes, you, you, you tell us at times to take a moment and look in the rear view mirror, to look at what we've done in the past and to confess and apologize, make sure we don't make those same mistakes. But you tell us to look just as much or longer through the windshield. Father, may we not be those kind of people that are always looking in our past. Every one of us, you have a future for us. Every single one of us. Father, for those that are married right now, I pray that you would strengthen their marriage. I pray that you would give us the discipline, the courage to invest time and money into our marriage. Father, sometimes we put more money into our cars than our marriage. Invest, Father, in our marriage, regardless of whether that's a retreat or a book or a counselor or whatever that may be. And, Father, for all the singles that are here today, never married singles, divorced singles, widowed singles, Father, whatever you have in their future, guide them. May they be controlled not just by emotion and by feelings, but also by your truth, knowing that when you bring those two together, you really can find the perfect match. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how helpful and practical it is. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. 
Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, exists to help everyone take their next step closer to Jesus. Thanks again for listening.